Greetings, you're on Deep Background for the 18th of January, 2017. Kind of a double show here today. Uh, later on, a bit later on, Scott Cannon, my colleague, will uh, meet with uh, Diane Stafford to talk a little bit about the changes coming to your workplace in 2017 and beyond. But first, I'm here, pleased to be here with Hunter Woodall of the Stars Topeka Bureau to talk about all things Kansas politics. Hunter, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Dave. Okay, so what, we're about week, a week into the 2017 session. We've had the state of the state. We've seen the budget. We've seen the reaction. What's the state of play? Where do we stand today? Is the governor's budget DOA? Is it alive and kicking? Is uh, are, are they alive and kicking at each other? Give me some sense of that a little bit. Well, it seems at the moment nobody's quite happy because the governor's budget came out and immediately Republican leadership in the Senate just said that we don't like parts of this, including you know the tobacco settlement, which would have been you know selling off 30 years of future payments to help get us through the 2019 year. That didn't have much support, as well as even tax sites for the sin taxes on cigarettes and alcohol. A lot of it was criticized on the spot. And the governor uh, responded by saying, well, where's your plan? Yeah. Where's your budget? Let's back up a little bit. Now, we've got sort of two different things going on here, don't we? We have a an immediate $340 million budget to shortfall that has to be filled by the 1st of July, mm-hmm. either through budget cuts or tax increases or, or accounting maneuvers, which this administration has some familiarity with, certainly. Uh, and then we have a bigger problem in the next two fiscal years, 2018 and 2019, correct? And that, the size of that is what? About another $900 million? Right. So we at the moment, Kansas is on pace for it's three, around $342 million in shortfalls through July 1st of this year. And then through 2019, including that, it's $1.1 billion. There's, they're estimated to be short. So yeah. it's a larger shortfall even next year where it looks like it will have to be some form of either tax increases or – Pretty severe budget cuts to get uh, the state through. Okay, let's take these one at a time. Let's take about the uh, to talk about the next six months, uh, of the three hundred and forty-two million dollar hole, which I don't think anyone thinks can be solved uh, by tax increases alone. Although the LLC exemption withdrawing that might provide a little bit of money if you make it retroactive, which may or may not happen. But the 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 primary proposal from the governor to fill that hole is to. Uh, in essence, sweep the investment pool, uh, which has about $350 million in it. Take $317 million, I think, was his number mm-hmm. out of that. Tell me about that. How does that work? Where did that money come from? What is in it? And how can the governor – he'll need legislation, won't he, to he take will. it? He yeah. will. He will need approval from the legislature. And it's a little bit of an oddity. It's actually called the Treasurer's Unclaimed Property Fund or Unclaimed Property Portfolio, but it does not actually contain unclaimed property. It's simply idle funds uh, invested to match the unclaimed property that the state gets. So the idea is if somebody comes in with a million-dollar claim, they'll have the money to pay it. So the money is sitting there, and Senate Republican leaders like Senator Jim Denning of Overland Park have really been advocating for this fund to be used as a budget gap. He's been saying this for about a month and a half now. And it does seem to have support, um, though lawmakers are leery of another one-time fix, which right. this would be. But but it would, at least to give the governor's uh, office its due and Senator Denning and others who support this idea, it would not jeopardize people who have unclaimed property claims, correct? That if right. you, if someone... The state of Kansas still owes you $200 from an old bank account, and you file that claim, you'll get your $200, assuming it's provable, correct? Right, and it doesn't affect claims at all. So what's the downside of this? Is there one? It, it does seem that there is anxiousness of just 
by doing it this way, there's no long-term fix. Uh, the way um, some on the on the left have been saying it is okay. This is this is like you're eating your uh, cake before you're eating potatoes. It's, right. This is an this is an easy fix when they need that long-term um, reforms. And there's a the concern of if they don't make long-term structural fixes, like for example, rolling back the LSE exemption or bringing in a third tax bracket from before the 2012 cuts, that they won't do it. Yeah, we, yeah. The um, the and the pooled investment. Uh, money that we're talking about here also yields money to the state, doesn't it? They take that money and invest it and get a return and use that money for the general fund. That presumably would go if you liquidated this fund. Exactly. Although we need to be a little bit clear, they're not really liquidating it either, are they? They're going to try and pay it back over seven years. That's the commitment anyway. Right. And that's I, the uh, House Appropriations Chairman has been worried. He's a former, he, he has an interest in the banking industry, and so that's a long time to pay back a loan. He'd like to see that be shorter. And that's a little bit of anxiousness, too, is Will they just push it back? What will happen by kind of saying, you know, people have joked that it's like a payday loan. Right. <laughs> and the governor's experience with paying back loans uh, is not uh, sterling, to, to say the least. Okay, but let's assume we can fix that problem through some combination of maybe some tax increases, some marginal bookkeeping things, and then using this fund. What about the next two years then? Now we're talking about some serious stuff. We're talking about taking $600 million or so from – the uh, highway money that is supposed to go to highways, it would go into the general fund money from a sales tax. You're talking about selling the bond uh, uh, or, or selling the tobacco proceeds, issuing bonds, getting that money. Let's talk about the highway money first. The bank of KDOT is now legendary in Kansas. Is this another trip to the teller's window, Hunter? It, it would be. It's you know, it's quite a bit of money, and I know the uh, Kansas contractors are very they're upset at this idea. They um, I talked to. Bob Todden, who uh, leads the organization, he, he's worried that because people are already leaving Kansas, you know, saying they're working jobs in Oklahoma and Nebraska, because there's not enough highway jobs here. And that's giving those folks a lot of heartburn because they seem like it's just getting worse and worse. Yeah. KDOT has been postponing projects because they, they weren't sure about their financial footing. So, it, and, you know, the highway is always a point of anxiousness with folks. And it seems to be, you know, the governor will hit back with, we have great highways. And then the, people, his opponents will say, well, we need to be maintaining them. And it's a very, it's just a very politically dangerous issue at this yeah, point. And, and I tweeted out, and I really believe this, and you, you may have a different view, but it, it, the repeated use of sales tax money meant for highways for general purposes suggests that the highways don't really need that much money, right? I mean, that if you, if you, if you repeatedly say, hey, we can take this money without any reduction in the quality of our roadways, why collect it in the first place? Which I guess Sean Sullivan sort of said, yeah, why, why collect it for roads in the first place? Which it seemed pretty meaty to me. <laughs> well, what's funny is, you know, other uh, groups have been kind of floating their own tax ideas. And one idea was even to hike up the gas tax a little right. bit to put more money back in the highway fund because of these sweeps. So people can't quite decide. And the idea from the uh, KCEG was, in essence, raise the gas tax to replace the sales tax money and then take that sales tax money, just as the governor has done, and yet use it for reducing the sales tax on food and some other spending purposes. So the idea of taking money from sales tax money from the highway department is not overwhelmingly controversial. Democrats and Republicans have done it. 
I guess the argument is you need to replace it to keep the roads at some standard, and the governor has repeatedly said, no, we think our roads are okay. Yes, he keeps citing this, I believe it was a 2013 survey from the Reason Foundation saying that Kansas has, has some of the best roads in the country, and his, his administration keeps pushing that, that we have, you know, that Kansas has great roads, that everything's going to be fine, then the Kansas contractors come out and say this is a public safety issue, and people, you know, are going to be hurt, you know, by us not investing in our roads. What's the chance of this becoming part of the final package, in your view, the highway part? I would I would say it's fairly likely only because there's not you know there's so many different f- facets of this the LLC you know exemption you roll that back it's about 250 million or so a year is what people are saying but that's still you're, you're still only halfway there right you're still short a lot so then there's the argument of well deeper and back a tax bracket so this does seem like it is one of those fixes and of all the things people have talked about as being you know really kind of dead on arrival for example you know there was a proposal for the sin taxes raising. Uh, liquor taxes, uh, cigarette taxes, tobacco product taxes, people did not like that. But the highway fund, nobody's really come out and said, this is terrible, we don't yeah. want to do this. Let's get, we'll come back to the tax package in a minute because it does also deal with the LLC exemption in a modest way, and we'll talk about that. But the other co- component, uh, uh, fundraising component, is this idea of selling the tobacco proceeds. Now explain how that works and how much revenue it would uh, generate and why everybody hates the idea except uh, Sam Brownback. <laughs> so that money right now, every year, you know, it's a payout from the tobacco uh, settlement that, that they reached in the 90s. States re- St- uh, reached an agreement because tobacco companies made people sick, and the tobacco companies agreed to pay states a certain amount of money every year. And Kansas is one of the recipients, one of the plaintiffs in that case. Right. And Every year, it's about I believe, 50 million for something called the Children's Initiatives Fund, which helps early education, and they say really does save you know, the state on education costs down the line by getting kids involved in education earlier. Now, under the governor's plan, you know, they sell off the proceeds. They, they get that lump sum initially. In other um, words, they sell their right to collect that tax for the next 30 years, go to the market and say, hey, you can have that 30 years as long as you give us X amount of money, about $500 million, $600 million for immediate use. Right. In essence, it's basically borrowing against future. It's like the annuity, you know, when they say on TV, do you have a structured annuity? (laughs) Would you like cash now? I mean, it's very similar to that, isn't it? No, and it it is. And the idea is, you know, as people smoke less, that cost will, you know, the amount of money they get every year would go down. Um, But people still do have that heartburn of, you know, what happens at Children's Initiatives Program. And that the governor has said, okay, we'll still fund that program through the general fund. Certain advocacy groups, I don't quite believe that. You walk in the basement of the state capitol right now, there are signs saying save the, save the CIF, save the Children's Initiative Fund, because they, they don't seem to have faith that, you know, if that money is taken away, that it will actually But again, that's a big chunk of money for the next two years. If you don't do that, you've got to come up with that kind of money some other way, right? Right. And, I mean, then you're looking at cuts. You're looking – of course, the LLC exemption being rolled back. But the, the funny thing is, there's still not a, a very loud conversation about bringing back the third tax bracket that was, you know, that the governor cut in 2012, along with trimming the, the income tax rates, which has kind of been one of those odd things of people really seem to get stuck on that LLC exemption. But that tax bracket change really has cost the state more money over time, and it's costing it more money annually. Yeah, that's the important thing for people to keep in mind is, the 2013 cuts were not just about exempting income for small business owners. Everyone got a tax cut. The people at the top got a pretty good tax cut. There's an argument that the people at the very bottom actually paid a little bit more when you couple it with the sales tax increases that went before. So you're saying you're not hearing a lot of yak about uh, either adding back that bracket. I've heard surcharges maybe. I've heard 
some and one of the things the governor proposes to do is to freeze the lower bracket which brings in a little extra extra money but there's no sense that uh, or is there a sense hunter that the legislators will look at that fundamental problem of income tax brackets and as a possible solution down the road well democratic leaders actually uh, last friday held a press conference saying hey we want to see that third tax bracket we want to see some larger tax reform that LLC exemption isn't enough and right now Republican leadership has centered themselves saying the LLC exemption, that being rolled back, really is a centerpiece of what we want to see. So you have the Democrats calling for larger tax reform, but from the Republicans, you're not quite getting that same sense. Everyone is being very vague right now as they want a long-term structural fix. They're not quite sure what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, we're some way is away from that. Let's talk a little bit about the tax piece. You talked about a, the cigarette tax. I think it was a dollar per pack of cigarettes, additional tax, mm-hmm. uh, some liquor tax increases, some minor adjustments to the LLC exemption that captures about $40 million a year. It involves rents and royalties. We mm-hmm. won't go too deeply into those weeds. But the idea is the governor thinks he's got about a $300 million right package, maybe a little bit more, uh, $380 million mm-hmm. maybe, uh, of, of revenue enhancers, if you will, that will help cover uh, this budget to shortfall. But again, I get the sense that that's if not dead on arrival, in critical condition. Is that right? And that's what it sounds like because the cigarette tax, you know, he, he, he put this out back out there, you know, earlier in his, in his term saying, you know, this would be a way to kind of bridge a shortfall. They only raised it by 50 cents, and he called for a $1.50 increase. So it's, again, he's calling for another increase. Um, that liquor tax would actually, you know, it wouldn't be so much on the drink that you buy at the bar, but this is what we're talking about. You go to a liquor store and you buy beer, you buy a bottle of wine, you buy right. a pint of whiskey. That's gonna, that's where that's going to hit. And when I've talked to uh, liquor store owners, they're very against that, of course, because that's a, you know it's it's a large charge. It, it would double the tax from eight percent to sixteen percent, which they say would be absolutely devastating to them. Right. Um, and the folks I've talked to on both sides have said they do, they do not want to see a targeted tax increase. They don't want to see something that targets somebody who buys something, they'd rather see that larger tax fairness. And so many folks ran, Republicans and Democrats alike, on tax fairness. So it'll be interesting to see you know, how far that comes to roost in terms of will they actually right. do that. So uh, just to summarize uh, a weekend, you get the sense that the, uh, uh, you know, the, what's emerging is uh, using the, the sweeps this next six months to sort of get you to the first of the fiscal year, maybe some other enhancements or changes, cuts, that type of thing. But by and large, it looks like that th- this fiscal year's problem can be solved relatively easily. Now, just so our listeners know, the court hasn't ruled on the tax issues for schools yet, so we're just going to assume that that hasn't happened. <laughs> we'll, we'll have another podcast when that comes through. You can believe that. But so let's assume we can get this six-month problem solved. Then the next problem seems to be, again, just generally speaking, get rid of the LLC exemption, maybe take another look at brackets or surcharges, sweep money from the highway fund if you can, the tobacco thing is out, and see if somehow you can make those numbers work. Am I close to what you think is going to happen, Hunter, or not? Oh, that does sound like what we'll probably see, though, again, if – these sides can't come to a, a, an agreement. We're going to have a long session. Yeah. You know, we're, we've been joking that possibly this could be longer than, than 2015. But what, what role does the governor play in any of this? 
Well, the idea is, you know, he still obviously he still has his veto, and he is he has continued to support that LLC exemption. So he's not going down on that one. He's maintaining his support for that even last week in the state of the state, right. saying Donald Trump's looking at this. Speaker but Paul if you Ryan but is. if you get a package that ends the LLC exemption, but it also has maybe the highway sweep, maybe some other, maybe a little fifty cents a pack on cigarettes, which even some health groups are sort of in favor of that. I mean, you could see where he could be put in a position where the veto would be less likely, even with the repeal of the exemption. First of all, it's possible that there are veto-proof majorities, correct? Right. And in fact, they're going to hear the, the LLC bill here in the next couple of days. It's possible they could get rid of that fairly quickly with veto-proof majorities. Maybe he'll see the light, right or not right? Well, the idea is there is talk, too, of they don't just want to pass a bill with the LLC exemption. They think they're going to, a lot of folks are saying, package it together with larger tax reforms. For precisely the reason I talk about, that it's harder to veto something if there's something that everyone right. dislikes in it. Because if it just, if it, you know, uh, Senator Jim Denning, of course, has said, you know, he thinks if the uh, bill with just the LLC reaches the governor's desk, he just won't sign it, but he'll let it become law. So, you know, it's his signature policy, and people do right. know he's, he, he's not enjoying, he's never enjoyed the criticism. It's been only mounting this last, last right. election. And he's lost Republicans on that, right? I mean, he's lost Susan Weigel and Jim Denning, and uh, Ron, Ron Reichman in some ways is not really enthusiastic about this thing, right? And the other Republicans on the House side. Right. I mean, Speaker Ron Reichman's been very pragmatic about this. He hasn't quite come out as strongly as the Senate Republican leaders have, but you know, Susan Wagle, they are openly criticizing each other now. You know, she criticizes tax plan. And to put out a release after the budget came out. Right. And then an hour later, the governor's office is criticizing her. And these, you know, she was once one of his stronger allies. And now they're, right. you know, they're bickering the folks in Topeka, which has, you know, been a surprising But move. But is it, again, we'll wrap up here, but it, you're beginning to see a little bit of a path out of this mess, aren't you? Or not? Again, leave the school thing aside, which will throw everything into a nightmare scenario, but just based on what we now see, you can see that there are elements of the governor's package that actually that might draw enough support to work if it's coupled with these other things that maybe he's not so fond of. Right. I, th I think you, you are right. We, there is that path forward for 2017 in terms of get us through this year, but after that, it's it's much more complicated. We'll have a better sense this week after that LSC hearing to see because right. it, it does sound like I mean I I'm, I was hearing from Republicans last week very publicly even you know from Olathe saying we want to see the LSC rolled back, which is much louder than they've been in recent yeah. sessions. And, and final question: It has to be fixed this year, does it not? I mean, it, as a political matter, nobody wants to wait until the next session in 2018 when. The governor will be the lamest of ducks. It'll be his last session leaving government, arguably, assuming he doesn't go to Washington. Um, members will be up for re-election. They don't want to vote on tax. I mean, it's a very difficult thing. Odd number of years are really the years you get things done. Right. This is the year. I mean, they have to pass the two, you know, 2018 and 2019 budgets this year. They want to get this done this year, and they also want to write a new school finance formula, which makes everything even more complicated. And put the court's decision in the middle of that. <laughs> exactly. So they, they have their work cut out for them, um, and they know and they know that, but they do sound determined to get this done. Whether it is, you know, it's in 90 days and we get out before, uh, before June, we'll see. Yeah. Hunter Woodall of the Stars uh, Topeka Bureau, you've got your work cut out for you, too, it looks like. Thanks for being with us on Deep Background. Thank you, Dave. Well, that was Dave Helling and Hunter Woodall talking about the way forward in Kansas, which promises to be a really interesting story in the year to come. 
Uh, we're going to switch gears on you a little bit. This is Scott Cannon. Thanks, Dave and Hunter. Um, I'm joined by Diane Stafford, who has covered everything for the Kansas City Star and done it in an extraordinary way. She has a particular expertise in workplace issues, right, Diane? That's true. I write a column every Sunday to give people career advice, but I also cover the workplace at large. Yeah, and that we unfortunately in the print version we bury that column, but I suggest people go looking for it in section Q. But it's always on the front of section Q or whatever it is, right? Right behind the real estate. Yeah, it's it's worth your time. Um, so we're just going to pick her brain today, as we will going down the road about workplace issues. And um, w one thing we want to start out with is sort of the changing nature of the office or the physical workplace, right, Diane? It's not like the John Hartford song where we all go to work in tall buildings anymore. There are some who do, but there are so many people now who never go to an office. And if they do go to an office, they might not even have their own desk. There's a great trend among large companies to reduce the amount of floor space that's allocated to people. If you are one who still actually works in a place that uses little cubicles, that cubicle has probably shrunk because companies are trying to save money and it costs money to allocate square footage to workers. But then there's this whole other class of worker that never even approaches an office. They're working at home. They're working at Starbucks. They're working out of their truck, their car, whatever. We are a very remote worker, mobile society now. Right. And there's all sorts of advantages of that. I can do flex time more easily. I can better integrate my, my family life with my work life, get them work around each other. To me, though, there's also kind of like this, this message that the employer is sending when they don't provide you a dedicated space, a dedicated desk, or even with a cubicle, there's sort of the implication there that we can, we can move somebody else in here pretty quickly. We, we're not investing a lot in keeping you long-term. If I give you an office, then, well, I'm not going to give you an office and let you go in, in three weeks. Well, that feeling of... Uh temporality extends to even employment. A lot of people are not, quote unquote, permanent employees anymore. Employers are filling their needs by hiring contract workers and temporary workers, part-time workers. They're not quite sure ever since the Great Recession that their business is really good enough or that they want to take on the added expense of providing employee benefits to full-time workers. So there is a huge trend to not giving a dedicated office or a dedicated desk to someone. In fact, a perfect example in Kansas City is the new GSA facility in downtown where Many people don't even have their own desks. They use a concept called hoteling, or uh, there's, there's many different words for it. But you go in and you just reserve a space. It's not yours. You have a couple of drawers on wheels that you can move to wherever you sit for the day. And that's very widespread, especially in some of the big accounting firms where people are on the road a lot. Why waste the space giving them a desk that sits empty all the time? Right. And to my mind, it, it sort of fractures sort of longstanding relationship that, you know, us baby boomers had at least with our employer that this is a long-term deal that I'm invested in you and you're invested in me. If I'm not even, if I'm, and we're, this is a white collar discussion for the moment, but if I'm not even invested enough to pull out the picture of my wife or my dog to put on the desk because I won't be there tomorrow, I, I, I got to think that's a, a two-way street in terms of sort of loyalty that workers are 
uh, expect of themselves toward their employers and vice versa, right? That's absolutely true, and it's uh, shown in the generational shift in attitudes. When I'm with human resource groups, the one thing I hear over and over again is among the millennial workers, you just don't have any loyalty. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They want to move up, but I train them, and then they're gone in two years. Well, what have they seen? They have seen the older generation, their parents, the baby boomers, let go because of corporate downsizing. And so they don't have any expectation of loyalty. They're a very mobile group, and they have a lot of web based resources that they can research other job opportunities. So of course they're here today, gone tomorrow. You can't expect otherwise. Right. It's interesting. And we also have all these trends that going in opposite directions because we, you know, typified most obviously in the way Silicon Valley has worked in terms of we're going to do your dry cleaning, we're going to have a gym and ping pong tables and and masseuses and, and these are for, for highly skilled people and where there's a, a great demand. And you see some of that still, even out here in the heartland, where there's there are certain perks expected. That is really uh, right on at Cerner and some of the quote-unquote best-in-class employers. The list of employee benefits is a mile long, including things like a corporate gym or a food service where you can stop by on your way home and pick up dinner for the night or on-site daycare. All of these things are designed, of course, to make it possible for you to stay on campus and work longer. So there's pluses and minuses because the always-on culture is creating a great deal of stress and in some ways turnover because people are saying, I just have to have family time. I have to have personal time. Uh, you talk to physicians who are dealing with people who have some kind of physical ailment and in many cases they trace it back to stress there's just a, you know people's bodies react eventually to this always on culture right and and, and the many ways in which we're able to um, measure productivity now however defined by you know business adds to that pressure I can you know if, if I'm slacking mm -hmm. um, in a ways that that folks wouldn't have known about my parents it's it's that data is collected mined and analyzed and we all sort of know what's you know just who's doing what and when so the idea that you might have might be a very productive employee but have a long downtime it's more obvious in some cases employers are doing a good job of measuring productivity in other cases the old top-down management by decree uh, structure has not yet caught up to figuring out how to identify the duties of the job and how to figure out if the person is actually doing what is expected. And part of the evolution to the service economy has meant that it's a lot harder to measure that productivity in some jobs because we're not counting widget production. A lot of times we're counting interpersonal relationships. And so the ability of people to get along with each other, both their bosses and their peers, is more important than ever before. And in a lot of ways... Even if I'm remote. Exactly. Exactly. What I sometimes talk about is imagine a pyramid, a tall pyramid, that had a lot of layers. Uh, and it used to be that the people at the bottom just did what they were told. Right. Squish that pyramid down with the 
recession, it got very flat. A lot of the mid-level managers... Flatter management structure. Right, right, right. And so it became more important for you to be able to be flexible and do more things. And self-starting. Exactly. Okay, now, take that flat pyramid and cut out some chunks on the side. So what you have left is something that looks like a witch's hat. Okay. If you can imagine that. Right. There's still a management structure, but and a why? flat. But all that stuff that just got removed in downsizing or outsourcing, that stuff still has to be done, but it's not done through a chain of command. It's done through interpersonal relationships. Your ability to do business with someone over whom you have no control now determines sometimes your success in the work world. How do you measure that? You know, how are people evaluated on that? It's interpersonal skills are more important than so ever does it, before. Does that increase the, you know, we've, we've been told for 30 years, network, know people, make contacts with people. Is, is that more difficult but more important or maybe it's easier with, with the, the various social media and such? Uh, social media makes networking very easy online, and many 20, 30-somethings are very skilled in that. What I hear from older uh, managers and human resource officials is that what we seem to be losing is some of the ability to have face-to-face contact discussions. Mm -hmm. If you go to professional organizations, you know, say it's an engineering group, you're going to find mostly the 40 and up something doing their handshake networking. So there is a division generationally in what is considered networking nowadays. Yeah. Um, let me shift gears just a little bit and we'll, uh, another day we'll go the sort of broad thinking because it's fun for me. Um, some things are going on now. Fight for 15 $15 minimum wage is going to be on the, looks like it'll be on the ballot in Kansas City. Whether it'll hold up in court fights is a, a real dilemma. The, the, the state says the maximum wage should be, what, seven seventy. It's seven seventy an hour as of January 1st. And there's this ongoing fight between the cities and the state in Missouri over who gets to make these rules. And, and should a city be able to set its own minimum wage? The proposal on the table here would... would um, you know, we, we say gradually uh, move it up to fifteen dollars by twenty twenty, but to get to seven seventy from from seven seventy to fifteen dollars in four years, three years now, I guess I'm losing track. Yeah. That's it's hard to see that as gradual. It'll be it would be a significant thing. First of all, uh, handicap the chance that it'll pass if. Uh-huh. Uh, in Kansas City, yeah. um, around the country, minimum wage increases are extremely popular. Okay. Whenever they've been put to a public vote or even a poll, they win by a landslide. Uh, there is a lot of pushback among people who say, well, you know, I work really hard for $15 an hour and no burger flipper should get $15 an hour. They should get a better education and get a better job. But then there are other forces that say any job worth doing is worth being able to afford a decent standard of living, not live way below the poverty line. The uh, horse is out of the barn in some respects in terms of uh, cities and states taking over the minimum wage question because the federal government has not moved for years on raising the federal minimum wage. A lot of states and cities have already gone that way. Yeah. So seg segue to the federal level. I can't remember his first name, Puzder, the head of right. Hardy's Carl's Jr., right. is uh, set to be most likely our next labor secretary. Although now they're saying maybe he doesn't like all the attention. 
Right. There were there was some sort of hints that yeah. he was going to pull out, and then he suggested otherwise. So, it, right. it, but it, it, you know, by the time you listen to this podcast, that may or may not have sorted itself out. But even his selection sort of makes a signal, kind of in the fi- fight for fifteen fight. Uh, I know that as soon as his nomination was announced, there were a lot of pundits who said, well, fight for 15 is dead. But then go back to what we were just talking about. It may be dead in Congress, but you look around the country, and especially in cities and states that are competing hard for good workers who are worried about the caliber of their employment base or have industries that really need to recruit from elsewhere— they're pushing ahead with wage increases. So, right. and then this, I, I, I raise it. Here's a guy who's head of fast food chain, who's, you know, been sort of public about let's roboticize where we can, and, and at least in some, you know, labor does not look at him favorably. Oh, not a right. bit, not a bit. Um, or manage, there, management and, would. And like. there is truth to that. If a company can be more efficient by using a machine instead of a person, then fine, go for it. But then let's also look as a nation about retraining and making sure that people have the education and the skills to handle better jobs. Because they don't now. A lot right, of people right. simply can't do any more than what they're doing now, and that has to change. And that burden is on the individual, not the government. It'll be incredibly contentious because any way you want to look at that is a, at least in the near, near term, maybe the long term, it's a wealth shift. I'm paying more for my burger, so this guy can make a fifteen hour, fifteen dollar minimum wage, um, or I'm paying more taxes to, uh, you know, subsidize training. We can we can agree maybe as a country that those are right or wrong things, but we can't agree easily. Well, the alternative to not paying an individual more, an individual actually works, the alternative to not paying that person more is that they're probably going to have to go on some kind of corporate support, whether it's, uh, you know, health care subsidies or whatever. So in the long term, all the rest of us, are helping subsidize that worker who either makes the money on his own or is subsidized by Section 8 housing or you name it. Right. Um, I saw ZipRecruiter came out with a survey that sort of recently looked at the, as Kansas City as a place where the job market looked strong relative to the rest of the country from a, a worker's point of view. Where's... Do you have any analysis there or why we might be uh, it might be a good place to get a paycheck? Kansas City has always escaped some of the peaks and valleys okay. of national unemployment problems because we have a s- extraordinarily diversified economy. Um, corporate recruiters will tell you that it is really hard to get people to come to Kansas City if they're not familiar with it. Once they're here, they like it and they want to stay. But they will also say that we are at a period of what some call full employment. And that means that almost everybody who's really capable can have some kind of job. It may not be the job they want, but there's work available. And that is true in the Kansas City area. Let me stop you right there. Do you have a sense of, say, relative to before 08 and the Great Recession, how much of that, uh, of our of the populace that's in those working years, so what, 22 to 65, roughly, <laughs> if, if that was, if 60% of those people were 
either employed or seeking employment um, 10 years ago? Where are we today relative well, to that? Well, actually, the employment to population ratio is about 65%, and it's fairly constant. It moves a point or two in either direction, but... So this idea that so many people just pulled out of the workforce then and never returned, that's less true than the fact that maybe they've, they, they might have been laid off, but they're, they're less employed today than they, they were. Exactly. They okay. may have a lesser job, but um, at this point now, and it's taken a long time to recover from the quote-unquote jobless recession, but at this point, there is work. It could be part-time. It could be $10 an hour in a call center. But there is. Is it, work. is it also is it significant yet the number of people that are in some sort of gig economy setup? So by that I mean you know. Mm-hmm. But um, the, so the Uber setup, where I'm kind of an independent contractor, I work you know from gig to gig to gig. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a significant number relative to? Yes. Yes, it's a very big number, but we don't always know what that number is because it is kind of a gray economy in some cases. Um, if, if you're an Uber driver, your earnings are reported through right. an established company, but there are an awful lot of people who are doing the gig economy on their own. And that's why you have to take any statistic these days with a this little grain of salt. This is the guy who says, I'd rather, not take, I'd rather not take a check for this one, right? Yeah, <laughs> or uh, yeah, cash on the side. So we don't actually know every dollar and cent or percentage detail of the labor force these days because we have seen this massive evolution to the gig economy. Yeah. And, and do you see any pushback from that? So I'm imagining I, I do some sort of widget work, whatever it is. And I used to be employed, which meant that somebody else handled my payroll, handled my expenses, put a roof over my head, all, or, or uh, you know, housed me while I worked. Now I've got to do that. So instead of uh, making widgets 100% of my working hours, I'm making widgets 80%, and I've reduced my own efficiency. I've, is there a pushback from um, businesses that say, well, maybe it's better for us to, to do that ourselves, we'll benefit from economies of scale, or, or do you see the trend becoming more and more Uber-like, more gig economy-like? Gig economy, as we started to talk about earlier, helps employers who aren't confident enough to add full-time employees with all of the attendant responsibilities for that kind of... Yeah, but of, the pushback uh, is, so, I've, I, yeah, I've saved this expense. I'm not, I don't have as much overhead as right. much, and hassle. But I, oh, actually, I do have some more hassle because if I, if, if I had eight Scott Cannons before... I probably need 10 now if I need the same amount of work because each of those is losing 20% of their time to their own housekeeping matters. And corralling eight freelancers or 10 freelancers is, okay. may not be more efficient than, than hiring eight. That's a good argument, and I don't know if there's been any study that proves that either way. I know that a lot of people who have been full-time employees and have gone to managing their own careers and doing the same work they did except on contract basis have had to learn how to market themselves, but they also have told me again and again that that they're happier and they make more money now than they ever did as an employee, even with the added responsibilities of being in charge of their own health care or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, Diane. Um, There's a lot more I could talk about or ask you about this, and so we'll do that down the road. 
But for the moment, that's it. Thanks for being here. Well, I appreciate the time. Everybody works, or everybody <laughs> who wants to work or tries to work uh, cares about some of these issues. <laughs> Absolutely, they do. Um, so you've been listening to Deep Background. Um, subscribe to us, give us a rating, and uh, share us with your friends so you can argue over what we have to say. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.